0: You have to live these uh, moments to understand how good, uh, how determined, how strong uh, was Niki Lauda. Niki Lauda was an incredible man.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is a man who, for a time, was one of the most sought-after motorsport managers in the world. He made a name for himself in rallying before switching to Formula One as Ferrari's sporting director in November 1975, on the eve of what would become one of the most tumultuous seasons in the sports history. The man I'm talking about is Daniele Aldetto. The timing of my conversation with Danielli is significant because this week marks 45 years since Nicky Lauda's fiery crash at the Nürburgring on the 1st of August, 1976. That was the crash that left Nicky staring death in the face and it also turned that year's world championship on its head. And as the most senior Ferrari man attending races, Daniele had to navigate the team not only through that incredibly difficult weekend in Germany, he had to guide it through the next few months as well, which included the dramatic title decider in Japan at the end of the year. But that's not all, because Daniele's Formula One career didn't start and finish with Ferrari. He also fronted Lamborghini's Formula One operations in the early 90s, as well as working for Ligier, Arrows, and most recently, Super Aguri. Remember the time that Senna tested a McLaren Lamborghini? That was Daniele's doing Or the time when Takuma Sato's Super Aguri overtook Fernando Alonso's McLaren at Montreal in 2007 while Daniele was Aguri's managing director. And in short, he's experienced so many different aspects of Formula One that his knowledge bank is almost unrivalled. He's also a great storyteller, which is fantastic for us. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Daniel, what a pleasure to have you on the show. You've had a hugely varied career, split largely between Formula One and rallying. Of those two disciplines, in which were you happiest?
0: Well, to be very clear with you, without the rally, I was not able to be that good uh, in Formula One because uh, just to remember, jean Todt, uh, Fiorio and many other they had a very successful and long uh, professional life in rally. And in rally, you really have to organize uh, like a battle, you know, like a war because talking 40, 50 years ago was really like a, to organize a battle, rally that uh, lasts all one week, uh, Monte Carlo, Safari, Acropolis and was really difficult to be winner in, uh, in rally and I was with the uh, Lancia Fulvia that was less competitive than the Alpine and the Porsche, with the Fiat Abarth 131 that also was not a rally car in the sense of the Stratos of the Alpine or the Porsche, but we managed to win like uh, you know a big uh, organization with helicopter, with airplane, uh, radio connection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when you go in Formula One, is more uh, political, is more uh, high technology, more ego, but at the end of the day, the organization is, you arrive in the airport, you go to the hotel, you go to the track, you go back to the hotel, you go back to the airport, end of the story. And when the race starts, at my time, uh, was not really strategy, because you have a a set of tires, very hard, like marble, you have the full of uh, fuel, and uh, you just start uh, the race and you hope... You cross your fingers, but was much more political, was much more, uh, you know, in the FIA and the uh, Bernie tables that you really decide many things. But for the team principal or the sport director, as it was at my time, uh, was really a preparation more, uh, you know, to put the people together, many ego and, uh, you know, engineers for Gary, Lauda and. Uh, uh, Regazzoni, Reutemann, uh, Gilles Villeneuve, you know, all special people. Even the last mechanic in Formula 1 is a big ego, you know. In the rally, you're more like a, a family and everybody helps each other. You travel the world, etc. Et very good time uh, in rally, but also very good time in Formula 1. So I have uh, to say to you that uh,
1: I was happy to have the formation in rally, but I also enjoy very much the Formula 1. Fascinating. So logistically rallying much more complex than Formula One, but maybe winning in Formula One is harder than rally. Is that a good summary of what you've just said?
0: Well, I disagree with you because uh, in rally, and I gave you the example of Munari with the Fulvia, Aurora with the One Three One, one with the car that is less competitive than the uh, a rally car made on purpose for winning rally, like the Alpine, the Porsche, or the Stratos, you can still win because it's so long and the many factors can make your final uh, result. In Formula One, of course, you must be a very good driver, but nevertheless, if you don't have the best team, it's difficult to win. And remember Russell in the last Grand Prix last year, he showed very well to you And to everybody that with the Williams was fighting for points. And with the Mercedes, I think he won the Grand Prix at the end of the day. Okay, he lost, but he was really the clear winner. So in Formula One, if you don't have everything on top, the team, the car, the budget, the best engineer, you
1: cannot win. In rally, you can win. Before we move on from rallying, I did just want to ask you about the Lancia Stratos because I think a lot of people listening to this, yes, they're Formula One fans, but what an iconic car. Must have been a joy to work with.
0: Yes, that was uh, really the car that uh, we need to beat uh, competitors because the Fulvia HF Coupe was really, you know, we want the Monte Carlo 72, but for many, many different reasons. You know, the Pirelli tires were better than the Michelin of Alpine. We also had a little bit of chance because of the snow on the top of the Turini, etc. etc. But nevertheless, the Stratos was conceived to be the beast to win everything. You know, it was, it was really a beast. It's such a good
1: word to describe it, a beast. I love
0: it. Yeah, was 500, 500 cars, Period, you know? That's why they have so much value now. And was conceived by the mind of Cesare Fiorio with our participation. So everybody of us, I was the team manager, Sandro Gunari and uh, all the drivers as to give the idea of was a winning car. Okay, So was light, was a middle engine, was with a powerful engine that we don't have in the Lancia factory and the production. (laughs) So where we can get the winning engine? Well, the group of Fiat is quite large and includes Ferrari. (laughs) We went to Ferrari and said, can we have uh, the Dino engine for our Lancia? And then very uh, luckily, Cesare Fiorio and Piero Gobato, that was before being the president of Lancia, was the general manager of Ferrari, we got the Ferrari engine. So the package was there, you know, mm. small car, light, middleweight, reattraction, and the power of the Ferrari.
1: Am I right to say that the Stratos uh, was developed by Mike Parks, British engineer and Formula One driver? Absolutely. My
0: past was uh, the key to develop the, the Stratos. Before was Engineer Dallara. The first one was Engineer Dallara. And Engineer Dallara made a big job to make the car reliable. Because at the beginning, the Strato was not reliable because of uh, the wheel. Uh, where you attach the wheel on the back, it was made uh, in a thin uh, metal, you know. And then... Uh, With the engineer Dallara, they decide to make it in a block, one piece, and then the car become uh, uh, reliable. But uh, my part was instrumental to make the Stratos also winning in the circuit, because we also start to win in the circuit. And Mike Pars was really a fantastic engineer because the, the advantage that he has from engineer Dallara that he was a driver. So when he, he speak with uh, Sandro Munari, with Walterer, with uh, Bjorn Valdegar, he really understand what they want. And it was much easier for Mike Pars to put what the drivers want into the car. So the Stratos became an untouchable beast. They won everything everywhere.
1: Ah, it certainly did. Now, tell us how you made the switch from rallying to Formula One. Well, that was a little uh, unexpected, the telephone call from Mr. Ferrari,
0: because uh, in my position of team manager of Lancia, we won uh, three world championships, one with the Fulio and two with the Stratos. And one day, Mr. Ferrari called uh, at my home. I don't know how he got my telephone number, and uh, my mother say, is Mr. Ferrari want to talk with you? I say, Mr. Ferrari, hello, Mr. Audetto, I want to talk with you. Oh, yes, Mr. Ferrari, what do you want? Can you come to Maranello? Yes. When? Tomorrow. Yeah, but <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> Mr. Ferrari, I, I will try my best, but tomorrow, you know. Anyway, as soon as you can come that I want to talk with you. Okay. So in a foggy day, I, I, I draw my Lancia To Maranello, I had to wait two hours in the Gozzi office before I was uh, welcomed by (laughs) Mr. Ferrari, but nevertheless. And Ferrari said to me, you know, they talk me very well of you. You're very young, but I think you could be the team manager of Ferrari. I am honored Mr. Ferrari, but you know, (laughs) I have no experience in Formula One. racing is racing, and uh, you know, (laughs) there's not a big difference. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much, but I have to to speak with my bosses, Mr. Fiorio and, and engineer Gobato, the president. Okay, so he said to me, Gobato was working for me for many years. I am sure we will not have a problem. And and indeed, Mr. Gobato said to me, Daniele, we have a problem with you if you go to Ferrari, because first, I think you are too young and you have not enough political experience for this world that I know very well. Second, as you know, you are the team manager because we promote Fiorio to be the marketing director. And so if you go away, you put us in a very big uh, problem. So I will uh, call Mr. Ferrari and we will postpone your move to Ferrari for a couple of years. What he did and he appointed Montezemolo. So Luca was a very successful team manager and he won the championship with uh, Niki Lauda. And then, after I finished with the Lancia, Mr. Ferrari was waiting for me. But the condition from the Fiat group, it was that uh, I was going to Ferrari because Luca Montezemolo was promoted uh, director of the external relations of the Fiat group, a very important position, very close to Avocato Agnelli. But, uh, I have to stay under the contract of Fiat for one year only because then they need me back to launch the Fiat 131 Abart in the rally and we won three more championships to give the possibility for the change from Montezemolo to somebody else. Then it was happening.
1: You're saying that your appointment at Ferrari was as a stand-in ahead of them appointing a permanent sporting director after you?
0: Correct. I always had uh, only one contract. I never had a Ferrari contract. I was like a
1: mercenary. So your contract was with Fiat and they could place you wherever they wanted?
0: Yes, yes. Okay. It was Fiat, but I was the sporting director of Ferrari and I was in charge, more important, of all the uh, meeting with the FOCA, Formula One Construction Association. It was with uh, Mr. Bernie Eccleston, Max
1: Mosley, uh, Colin Chapman, Ken Tyrrell, Robin Heard, you know, all these... Of course, all these legends of the sport. So so we're talking 1975 now, aren't we? That's when you make the switch.
0: The switch was after the Tour de Corse that we won with the Stratos. And then in November, I was attending the first meeting in London with the Formula One Contractor Association and... Uh, I met for the first time all these, uh, you know, superstars for us, you know. Colin Shaman, Ken Tyrrell, Bernie Eccleston, Robin Aird, Max Mosley. How
1: welcoming were all those guys?
0: Yeah, very, very friendly. It was really good. Very good uh, atmosphere. I was representing Ferrari. So, nevertheless, you know, I was uh, representing the world champion because 75 was uh, the victory of Niki Lauda. So, I was... uh, and so I started the collaboration and uh, I have to say I was uh, instrumental many times to make uh, Ferrari and Bernie Eccleston more, not say friend, <laughs> but you know to find uh, some solution because Ferrari was a real fighter, extremely clever, intelligent man. And Bernie Eccleston tried to have the control of uh, the Formula One. It was a great uh, Visionary businessman, etc. etc. But the interest of Ferrari were different from the English constructor. So it was not easy to be in between. But uh, I was quite diplomatic. At the end of the day, I think we managed to find a good uh, compromise between uh, Mr. Ferrari and Bernie
1: Eccleston. Tell us a little bit more about Mr. Ferrari. What kind of a boss was he? How demanding was he? What did a typical week look like for you in terms of? your meetings with him?
0: Well, it was like a movie, you know, because Ferrari was unpredictable, very clever. Sometimes I cannot understand his decision because he was looking not one or two days, but he was looking like uh, a checkered player, you know, very, very clever. And uh, I only know one thing after one month. When he called me Daniele, he was uh, in good mood. And when he called me Audetto,
1: it was a, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was Daniel more often than not, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And that was a lesson. And uh, because I am not a, a yes man, I like, uh, you know, even if Ferrari is my boss, if uh, I think I am right, I try to defend my, my position, my idea. So I think at the end of the day, uh, Ferrari like also my way of uh, interfacing with him, you know, not a yes man, but somebody that also has the the, the gut to, to to say, Mr. Ferrari, I think you're wrong. <laughs> it's very difficult to say to Ferrari, I think you're wrong. But nevertheless, if I believe, it. so to give you an example, you know, when we went in Brazil, and because of my experience in rally, I asked to have a doctor, because in Brazil, it's very easy to eat something wrong or to have uh, the Montezuma, Montezuma disease, etc., etc. So it's very debilitating, you know, to, to, to have said. So I say, I want to have a doctor in Brazil to take the blood pressure to Niki Lauda to clear cancer. They look to me like crazy because nobody was using Formula One to have a doctor in the Grand Prix. But that was one thing that Ferrari at the end. Had accepted, but he thought that maybe I was uh, spending money that you don't use to spend because money was very important for Ferrari to save money. And another thing that I introduced in the Formula One was the radio, because in rally, for us, it was very normal to have radio to communicate with the drivers, with the mechanics, with the engineer, with the head of the race, etc. Et so I asked to my technician from the Rally to come to Ferrari to make a test in Fiorano, and I remember very well it was a, a, a month of August, and uh, Clay Regazzoni was testing the radio with uh, an antenna on the top of the helmet, <laughs> and we talked with him from the from the pits, and was working, you know. But Ferrari said ah, it's a distraction. You you I I think is a you know is a waste of time and money concentrating. so. But we test the radio for the very first time in '76 uh, in Fiorano with Clay Regazzoni, and and now you know the radio. They, they yeah. talk like uh, you are in in a in a pub. You know they they talk too much. But
1: two great stories, and also with the pits to car radio. How much could you hear back then in '76 with the roaring V12 in the back of? reggae's car and...
0: Well, we have to understand that we were very well advanced in rally because we had the connection with the airplane or the helicopter coming back the signal to the... where I was uh, in, in, my, in my car or in the headquarters of the rally and they can speak with the drivers etc. Et or the drivers especially in rally like the safari that the, the server so I was quite specialized in radio you know So it was a little bit noisy because, you know, the 12-cylinder in the back. But nevertheless, it was working. So I am sure that if Mr. Ferrari was supporting, and more important, if we didn't have the accident of Niki that, uh, you know, was like a a, a tsunami that that changed the life uh, for Ferrari for two months, uh, I think we should have continued to develop the radio for more one. But nevertheless, that was a story that was top of many other projects that I had because of Nikki accident in Nurburg. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards found them. Software engineers found that project manager I
1: could never seem to hire, and found LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, eighty-six percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within
0: twenty-four hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com/spoken. That's LinkedIn.com/spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Daniele, seventy-six was a baptism of fire for you in Formula One. I mean, it's crazy to think all of the different things that went on that season for you. Can we start at the beginning of the season? Let's go through that year chronologically because the car was, was brilliantly fast early on wasn't it? And, and Nikki went into the Nürburgring, the German Grand Prix, with a 23-point lead in the championship. You must have thought at that point, before the race, that it was all looking very easy.
0: Well, it's never easy, and that, uh, you know, until the last uh, Grand Prix and the last finish. But nevertheless, 3 was really a fantastic car. Nicky was in a great, great uh, mood, and... Uh, you have to remember that the points for the winner were nine, not 25 like today. So 23 points are like almost three wins. OK, so it was more than half a season. And the problem, again, was in the head of Nikki. Why? Because Nikki is such a strong, I talk about Nikki in the present, not in the past, is such a strong personality that when you want uh, something, and something in he said uh, is very difficult, it's not impossible to make Niki change his mind. And uh, Niki, being uh, an Austrian, German speaking, was so against the Nürburgring that was too dangerous, too long, uh, difficult to have uh, the first aid, etc., etc., that he really wanted to ban the Nürburgring Grand Prix. And he made such a mess. I have to, to say, with the journalists, because, of course, the German journalists were in favor of Nürburgring, and the drivers were also not very sure they want to race in Nürburgring. So Nicky spent uh, the last uh, week before Nürburgring to arrange a meeting with different drivers, with Emerson Fittipaldi, that was the president of the uh, GPVA, etc., etc., and at the end of the day, Nicky convinced the drivers to have a meeting and to vote in favor or against racing in Nurbury. So you have to understand how emotional it was for Nicky this week before the race. I said, forget you are leading. Go slow. Don't take risks. If you, you, you know, you have two, 23 points, just, just." Don't make this mess because, you know, we have everybody against. The, the, the organizers, Bernie Eccleston, they already have the contract with the television. No, 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 it's too dangerous, it's too dangerous. Yeah, I don't fucking care. You know, Mickey is a Mickey, you know. It's... And he had this meeting, vote. He lost for one vote. So they vote to race in Norbury. And Nikki was very furious, disappointed,
1: you know, because oh, we have to race. So he was in a bad place mentally going into that race.
0: It was distress, was, was was really dedicating his mind, not concentrated on the race. He was concentrating on banning to race in Nürburgring, you know, an historic race in Germany, and we were already there, etc. So it was, was, was difficult, good. was difficult. But, you know, Nikki is Nikki. He did a good time, nevertheless, he was second, first row. At this time, you start. The first row was one-one on the same level, you know, not eight meters behind. So James was in pole. Nikki was second, says okay. But start to rain, and Norbury to rain is quite normal, but was not good for Nikki. Let's say that was raining because he was already under stress. It was better to have a, a, a dry race, etc. Et but nevertheless, it was raining, and we start the race on rain and at these days you know the rain like the slicks were like marble you know we didn't have the warmer of the tires. you know you take the tire it was a piece of ice you know you put in the car you know the only one that started with the slicks was mass you know why because he's German because he had some friend on the other side of the circuit when you have a, such a long circuit you're know, 23 24 kilometers, you know, could rain at the start. You can have sunshine on the other side. And Jochen was with the slicks. All the other were with the rain. So start the race. Of course, after half lap, everybody saw the track was dry. So everybody come back to change from rain to slicks. At the time, we don't change the tires in two seconds, but maybe in 15 seconds, you know. And you take this four piece of uh, ice, Goodyear, hard. You put on Nicky, and the Quaggi team. We made not mistake. You know, was a little bit slow. You know, and he lost uh, three or four places. So he, he, he started that he was even more furious. Okay, it started like a tornado. You know, he overtook immediately two or three cars. Uh, Carlos Paz told me that he, when he Nicky passing was like you know. Aah! And he arrived in this famous Berwerg curve, that was still in some place wet or humid or whatever. You know, it was cutting on the on the inside of the corner. You have a little bit of uh, cement. You know, that was even more wet. You know, and he lost control on the wet, and he crashed against the rock on the right. Unfortunately, the rock broke the fuel. Uh, Reservoir and the, the flame involved all the car, you know, and Ertel and Lunger even crash against him. And it was total panic. Luckily, Arturo Merzario was so brave to go into the flame, and with the help of Guy Edwards, I think, they extract they Niki. It was still conscient. And uh, he was completely burned because he lost the helmet and uh, part of the bataclava. And this phase was really horrible because what's more dangerous is that for stopping the flame, they use a lot of fire extinguishers. So this um, chemical that invade the cockpit and Nikki inhales a lot of these uh, fire extinguishers. So Uske von Heistein, that was the race director, came to me and said,
1: Daniel, we have to go immediately to Adenau Hospital because Nikki is there. So because of the, the, the lack of radio and things... How soon after the accident did you, in the pit lane, know that a) there'd been an accident, and b) that it was serious, and c) that it involved Nikki?
0: I think it was quite long, maybe more than five minutes, you know, because the radio of the marshal on this place called the race control. The race control called Uske von Einstein, race director. Uske von Einstein came to me and said, "Come in my post, and we go." to Adenau Hospital, it was a little hospital in this little village of Adenau. When I arrived at the hospital, I think it was minimum 20 minutes from the accident. And uh, when we arrived, Niki was awake, was talking to me. But the doctor took me and uske von Einstein, and they say to me that the vital parameter of Niki were very, very bad, and they, they already Fair for his life in Adenau. And they say it's very little we can do here. He should go to a real hospital. So that well Uske von Einstein was very important to save the life of Nicky because uske von Einstein knew the doctor of the Mannheim Hospital, and Mannheim Hospital was was already with a, a Clean room, you know, where you have to take people with this. uh... And he had the telephone number of this uh, professor, I think his name was Peter, not first name, family name, Peter, I think. He called him and he said, Ah, Uska, what can I do for you? I am just about to leave uh, to go on holiday. He said, No, no, no. He said, Peter, please, uh, I have Niki Lauda here that has a very bad uh, accident. I can arrange for an helicopter. Can you go back to the hospital and we send Nicky in the helicopter to Mannheim? I say, okay, okay. You know, for Nicky, I do that. And he prepared the clean room for Nicky. We arrange for the military aircraft that arrive in a few minutes. And when I put Nicky into the helicopter on a on a bench, I touch his hand. And his feet were already cold, you know, almost blue, because the blood circulation was already having problems because of the poison that he, he inhaled. But he was so lucid to tell me, please inform Marlene, my wife, where I am going because I don't know, and go in the motoron and there was the boss of the shock absorber where I left my briefcase with all my documents. So take the briefcase and bring it. So I left Niki into the helicopter. With Uske, I went back to the circuit. And with Hermano Kuogi, the chief mechanic, I drove to Manai Hospital with the briefcase. And I called Marlene. So when I arrived at the hospital, the doctor said to me, "We." Try to save Nikki's life. We gave him a oxygen, we make a tracheotomy, but we just hope now, we have to wait 48 hours. So I informed Mr. Ferrari of the situation that, uh, you know, Nikki was in danger of life. Ferrari said to me, Daniele, what are you doing at the hospital? I wait for the news to tell you. No, 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 You it's not your place, the hospital, the doctor are taking care of Nikki. Now you go back to the paddock and you tell Emerson Pitipaldi that I offer him uh, my car to race for the rest of the season because nobody, nobody was even thinking that Nikki could recover before the end of the season or even to race again or the worst to save his life. So Mr. Ferrari was thinking, no, I lost the driver at least for the season go back and ask Emerson Fittipaldi, why Emerson Fittipaldi? Well, Emerson Fittipaldi was a two-time world champion and he had a very bad car, the Sucar was not competitive at all. And he was struggling with this car and Mr. Ferrari, quite rightly so, believed that Emerson would accept to become Ferrari driver.
1: Enzo comes across as a very cold, heartless man to be doing this within a couple of hours of Nikki's accident.
0: Yeah, because the situation was desperate. So he has to think that he has to make his company live. So you can lose one man, but you have to save maybe I don't know one thousand people. You know that that lives on, on Ferrari. Not only
1: the racing department, the you know the production, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. I guess it was just different back then, Daniel. I think now people would be shocked if a team owner was thinking two hours after an accident who was going to replace the driver. But I guess it was different back then in that these accidents, serious accidents, happen more often, didn't they? Well,
0: but, you know, even in Senna time,
1: you know, Frank Williams decided to replace Ayrton uh, in two weeks. You know, he took, uh, I, I don't remember, Coulthard or... Coulthard and Mansell, wasn't it? yeah. So when you approached Emerson about replacing Nikki, what answer did you get? Straight,
0: said to me, Daniel, if I go back to Brazil, they kill me because, you know, is the large, one of the largest uh, companies we have in Brazil. We invest so much money on my name. I really can't. I am so sorry. I would love to drive for Ferrari. But, you know, Copper is my project. I put my name, I put everything and Copper Sucre believe in me. And is a uh, state affair, you know, it's impossible. And I informed Mr. Ferrari that Emerson <laughs> was really honored, but he has to refuse because of those reasons, you know. And then Ferrari accepted, and uh, he said to me, come back. And, uh, you know, we leave the doctor, do the job. And in the night of the accident, Niki had the last uh, writ, you know, the last the story that they say, you know, I like the story. Even it probably, you know, Niki under the he say to the to the priest <laughs> like this, you know, he, he make the finger <laughs> out of the. I don't think it's true, but is what he like. He what he like to to say, you know, I, I will never die. You know, I, I never die, and in fact. Because Nicky was also physically very strong, not only in his mind, you know, was a guy that never drink alcohol, never smoke and was really, you know, was not like, uh, because Nicky also changed the attitude of the drivers in Formula 1 because he was, in my opinion, knowing all the other drivers, you know, Mario Andretti, Claire Regazzoni, Jacques Laffierce, they were really... Romantic guys, you know, really gentleman drivers, you know, the, the risky uh, ladies and uh, playing tennis, golf. Eh? Nicky was, you know, was, was really the first professional, you know, he had his physio, he drink only milk. And so physically he was really fit and he started recovering back in, I think in 40 days when he heard that uh, Ferrari contacted Ronnie Peterson
1: that was ready to race in Monza. that <laughs> was something incredible, you know. So so you went from Emerson, who said no, to Ronnie. Was he the next telephone call you made? Yes. And Ronnie was driving for March at the time.
0: And that was a little bit more complicated because we have to deal with a, a very famous man, Max Mosley, very tough, that he was making things very difficult for Mr. Ferrari. So he want to release... A, Ronnie, for some money, and uh, Ferrari, of course, preferred not to pay this money. But at the end of the day, Count Zanon a very wealthy man, uh, etc., et friend of Ronnie Peterson, and very well-known in Formula One, because he was the sponsor with Lavazza of uh, Brambilla and uh, Lella Lombardi, you know, was was really a gentleman and very rich, and at the end of the day, they also rumored that he was shareholder with March and with Williams. He helped uh, Frank and uh, Max with some money. He had some share in March and in Williams. He came to Maranello to discuss with the Ferrari. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, Mr. Ferrari, I really want to help you. And I want Ronnie to race for Ferrari. I will fix everything with, the, with the March, with the Max and he did. So at the end of the day, Ronnie was ready to come to test the car in Fiorano, and uh, Hermano Cuoghi was already making uh, the cockpit uh, adapted to Ronnie, that uh, Ronnie was a little taller, you know, was a big guy, you know, with the pedals and the, uh, was preparing the car for him. But, Nicky was recovering very fast, and when he heard that Ronnie was going to drive his car, he made the uh, Another mess. <laughs> <laughs> so I say, I call Luca Montezemolo, that was a big boss in, in the Fiat group. I say, if you do that, you, you really don't respect me because okay. At the end of the day, Nicky knew very well Ronnie because they were together in March, and he knew that you know Ronnie was not an easy guy to have, and he was already thinking to be ready to not only to finish the championship, but he already had the contract for 77. So he really didn't like to have Ronnie as his partner. So Luca Montezemolo called Giovanni Agnelli that he just had uh, bought the 50% of uh, Ferrari. So Fiat was the, let's say, the co-owner of Ferrari. And more important, they put a lot of money to have the Fiat uh, logo on the Ferrari. Mr. Ferrari received a telephone call from Giovanni Agnelli, you know, the president of Fiat, a very important man in Italy, etc., etc. And he said, Mr. Ferrari, you know, Nicky won for us the world championship. He think that he will be ready soon uh, to race. And uh, I really ask you not to take Ronnie Peterson." I was in the workshop exactly with Quoggi near the Ferrari Car making ready for, uh, for Ronnie test, and the secretary of Mr. Ferrari, a gentleman called Valerio, came uh, in the workshop and they asked me, Daniele, Mr. Ferrari want to see you immediately. So I went to, to see Mr. Ferrari, I said, start with Daniele, call Ronnie Peterson, cancel the test because we don't need him anymore. I said, but Mr. Ferrari, I said, you know. Is a big mistake <laughs> because we prepared the car. Ron is very fast, he will defend the, the position of Niki to win the championship, and etc. Et so, it's, you know, everything is ready. I was really trying to convince Ferrari, not knowing was was the, the background, you know, that was Mr. Agnelli. They asked him to. And Ferrari let me speak for three or four minutes, and he said, and then he became very angry against me, and say, Audetto, I told you to cancel the test with Peterson, and here I am the boss, you understand or not? Go and call Mr. Peterson. He was so upset, he was so red in his face, and he stand up behind his desk, and he was like looking to throw the desk against me, you know? He said, how oh, did you do what I told you? I am here, at the boss. My, my God, I say, <laughs> cool oh, down, cool down. <laughs> <laughs> so we stopped every sick, and eventually Bernie Eccleston was so kind <laughs> to give him uh, Carlos Reutemann. Carlos Reutemann was very welcomed by Nicky and by everybody. Very nice guy, fast,
1: but not that fast easy to, to control if you want. Daniel, sorry, but why did you go and get Reutemann when Nikki had been telling you, don't get anybody, I don't, we don't need anybody?
0: No, well, that is a little different. Like, it didn't say, I don't want anybody. I don't want Ronnie Peterson Because probably what I understand afterward, that during the period in March, they had some something. You know, they, they were not best friends. Not because he was just fast, but probably because at March time, they had some, something, you know. But nevertheless, he was very strong against
1: running. During Nicky's recovery, his recuperation, how much contact did you have with him? And Can you just tell us a little bit about his spirits and how determined he was and what he was like on the telephone when you spoke to him?
0: Nicky was so upset with me that he didn't want to speak with me because... He thought uh, wrongly that I was uh, the man going to offer his car to Emerson Fittipaldi. You know, <laughs> I only did what Mr. Ferrari asked me to do. But he was very upset with me for two reasons. The first one is that I contact Emerson Fittipaldi. and the second one is because on the German television or Austrian, telev- Austrian television, Heinz Prüller, that was a uh, Journalist of orte uh, radio television, ORF. Yep. gave me an interview, and he say, "What do you think uh, happened with the accident of Niki Lauda?" And I say, "What I knew that the car was without any mechanical problem because the four wheels were, you know, marking the asphalt until the impact." So. It was true, the story that we are trying to say, that he broke a suspension. You cannot have the, the mark of the four wheels going in parallel against the impact, you know, because otherwise, if you have one, one suspension broken, you have one wheel that doesn't mark the, the, the asphalt, you know? So I say, I think that, Nicky, we, we, we changed uh, the tire is not very fast. He was very, very angry. And... He went too fast on the left corner that we are still humid. The, the tires were very cold and he lost control of the car. So that made Nick even more upset with me because you want me to say that he had like a mechanical problem. But we, we checked the car, we checked the place of the accident. We, we also had the video of an amateur that you can really see the problem that he cut the border on the left a little bit up. Nicky was very upset with me. Reason. Okay. So you only speak with Luca Montezemolo, that in fact, Luca was my boss because I was in Fiat contracts <laughs> and Luca was a boss in the in Fiat. But nevertheless, my direct boss was Enzo Ferrari. But because of Niki recovering so fast, was so unexpected that Ferrari signed the contract with Carlos Reutemann because he said, in Monza. We will race with Carlos Reutemann and with Clay Regazzoni. Two cars. So Nikki said to me one day, say, Look, I am ready to test the car. Ready to test the car? Yes, I want to test the car because I want to race in Monza. Okay, let me inform Mr Ferrari. Okay, but tell him that I am ready. And Mr Ferrari say to me, Listen, in the contract he has to show me that he's fast and that is fit to race. Tell him to come to Fiorano. We prepare the car. If he's fast and if he's fit, I cannot.
1: I cannot. Stop him. You cannot prevent him from racing. You yeah. have to give him a car.
0: But we already have two cars. OK, we prepare a third car. That was another mistake because, you know, three cars in Monza, you know? Nevertheless, we fix the day of the test. Nikki, you can come, but you have to show to Mr. Ferrari that you're fast and fit. When he arrived, that is a vision that I can never forget in my life. Mickey arrived in uh, Fiorano with his plane. That apparently he also drive himself to come to Bologna. He was so pale. He was plenty of uh, scare. He, he lost one well air, He cannot close well the eyes. Was like a, a ghost.
1: How excited was he to be getting back in a racing car, though? Can you remember that? He was very cool, very
0: cold, very determinate, you know. He went into the Fiorano office to put the overall. He came out with the overall that was very large, you know, because it, he lost, I don't know, 10 kilos. He came uh, into the car. Kwogi helped him to put the safety belts. He made two laps, very slow. He came back to the pit, and we look each other and say, you see. No, he, he was coming back because the the first bell were too loose. Because of course he was so skinny, so he want to adjust. Uh, he want to adjust a little bit uh, to make him more comfortable. So he start to make more laps. Maybe he did uh, ten laps. You know, come back slow, always slow. Same thing, same thing. But no, he wants some ad- adjustment on the setup of the car. Huh? And then on the thirteenth. He started to make more laps, more fast, more laps, more fast, more laps, more fast. At the end of the day, he did a lot of laps, and he was almost close to the lap record. Something unbelievable. So we say to Mr. Ferrari, look, these are the time he did uh, 60 laps. You know, He did a very good time, very consistent. Fast and fit. Fast and fit. He demonstrated to us that he was fast and fit. But if you see Nicky, you cannot believe it. If you see his face, if you see his, how he was Skinner. And Ferrari said, we prepare a third car. Reutemann, Regazzoni, Nicky Lauda. And we went to to Monza. And Monza was really a grand casino, like we say in Italy. All the press, all the photographer, all the
1: television. Well, I mean, Daniel, a hell of a story, isn't it? I can only imagine what it must have yes, been like.
0: yes. And Nikki, when he took out the helmet, all the bataclava was red of blood because, of course, we are not, but he, he cannot take the bataclava out because it was sticky on his face with the blood. So he had to go with some water or something. We managed to take away the bataclava. He cannot close the eyes because of the accident and was uh, always wet the eyes, you know, because. If you cannot close the eyes, you are wet, so the, vis- the vision is not so good. But to make the long story short, he finished the race in fourth position. And he was maintaining the leadership of the championship because James Hunt was discovered at last with the wrong fuel, with more octane that he was using not Texaco, that was the sponsor, but a special chemical fuel that was not legal. So they took away the time of, of the quali, and he, he started in last position,
1: and he, I think he had an accident. So Nicky Ford increases advantage on James. Did you get emotional after the race? Was he emotional? Yes, you have to stay cool. Otherwise, if you if you
0: lose to the emotion, you are not uh, professionally fit. You have to think what is your job, and you have to stay cool and uh, avoid the emotion. Take advantage of you; otherwise, is is a completely mess. I try to keep Nikki alone as much as I can, without everybody want to have an interview, photograph, etc., et So what I did was really to keep Nikki a little bit uh, away from the, the chaos, you know. But uh, very little I, I I can do. But the emotion, of course, inside me
1: was a lot, but I have to show. That I am cool, that I can speak with Nicky and with the engineer cool. And Daniel, in your 40-plus years in Formula One, was that the single most impressive performance that you ever saw?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. was something that you have to live uh, these uh, moments to understand how good, uh, how determined, how strong uh, was Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda was... Not only a champion, because of course he won the World Championship, but was an incredible man. He was controlling inside him uh, the, the not only the motion, but the strength, you know, because you can imagine that 40 days before he had the last wrist and he was fourth in Monza. It's unbelievable. I saw him into the helicopter that I, I, I was thinking, I never see you alive, I was thinking. And he was in Monza racing and finishing fourth is unbelievable. I can't forget for all my
1: life and another life, all these moments. If we then fast forward that 76 season to Fuji and Nicky's withdrawal from the race, were you surprised that he parked it after a couple of laps given that you'd gone into that race leading the world championship by three points?
0: Okay, now you have to know the truth and the truth is quite different because when we had the monsoon in Fuji, everybody understood that it was impossible to race, just impossible, because the track was not a track, it was a river, and the water was not water, it was a cascade, you know, it was like the Niagara Falls. And when you have a monsoon in Japan, it's really a big monsoon, you know. It's... But because of the fight between Nikki and James to the last race, and Nikki was still leading with three points, Bernie asked to Nicky, to James, and to Emerson Fittipaldi, that was the president of the GPDA, to go in his office and to reach an agreement. And the agreement was because at five o'clock
1: we lose the TV connection, you know? That's right. It was being broadcast live for the first time, wasn't it? So Bernie was, was... a big deal, big money. So I say, look,
0: we are going to lose everybody if we don't start the race. We lose with the TV broadcast. We lose with the organizer because if we don't start the race, we lose uh, to starting money, the, the promoters' money. All the team will lose money, and at the end, you lose money as well. So what I ask you is to start the race and to stop after two races. I want just that you start. Legally, the race. Okay? And then you stop, and I, I understand that you cannot race in such a condition. Okay? They shake hands and they agree to stop
1: after the start. James, Nicky and Emerson, all three shook hands. Correct. Interesting.
0: What I didn't know, and that you can read the uh, uh, Morris Hamilton book on Nicky Lauda that he made uh, an interview with Alistair Caldwell, that with Teddy Mayer, that was the boss, was the team manager Bob McLaren, that when James came to the pit and say, said, okay, I start, but I have to stop because I agree this with Bernie, Nikki, Emerson, and I agree. Teddy Mayer, that was a lawyer, and Alistair Caldwell, that was the team manager, he said, James, if you do that, we kill you, your career forever. You will lose everything. You will lose all the money, and you will be a poor man for the rest of your life. If you do that, you are a dead man in sportive sense. So they scare so much, James. But James cannot go back to tell Nikki because they just they, they are on the grid. You know, it was raining like hell. In the interview that uh, Morris Hamilton made, uh, Alistair Colway confirmed to Morris Hamilton this story. That is the only true story. That was not in the Rush movie. You know, that is the real story. So Alistair Colway, because Teddy Mayer, unfortunately, passed away, he said, yes, it's true. James came and said to us, I have to stop because I agree this, but we convince him in the good manners or bad manners that he cannot do that for the team, and Nikki stopped after one and a half lap. on the second lap he stopped. My mistake was professionally, I have to say, Nikki, go out and wait that James stop as well. Don't stop you first, but under this rain, seeing Nikki in the helicopter almost dead, Seen what he passed. So can you imagine if I forced him to go out and the air as a Because you know, people were spanning uh, uh, mm. crash. Mm. You know? mm. My heart was stronger than my head. I say to me, it, it's better one life that a were champion, you know. But in reality, I have had to say, Nikki, go out, go slow, but wait. Because in fact, after Fifteen twenty left. Like all the monsoon, decrease a lot
1: at, at the end of the day of the race. Do you think Nicky felt cheated? The fact that he stopped and James didn't. At the beginning, yes. But
0: James was a really a gentleman, and nobody know he was a good friend of Nicky. So James explained to Nicky what happened. James tell Nicky, "I am so sorry, but you know." What happened with Teddy Mayer and Alice Collett? I, I, I was really taken by the troth, you know, and I cannot refuse to not stop. And I had to go ahead and I feel third. I didn't even know that I was third. I, I thought I, I lost the championship. So Nikki forgive James. He lost the championship, but he won the year after for Ferrari 77. He was champion again. And that is the end of the story. But the reality is that they agreed
1: to stop with Ben Eccleston. And how did Nicky pulling out of the race affect his relationship with Enzo Ferrari?
0: At the beginning, Enzo Ferrari was supporting Nicky's decision. But because the relationship with Nicky were already damaged by the fact of Emerson Fittipaldi, the fact of Ronnie Peterson... The fact uh, that uh, we declare in a, of official press release that the car didn't suffer any mechanical failure, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But we already had a contract with Nikki to race in 77. So as soon as he was sure to have uh, the championship in the pocket before the last two races, Canada and Japan, he said, Thank you, bye-bye. And he took with him uh, two or three very important people from Ferrari like Hermano Puocchi, the chief mechanic, to go to race for Brabham.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think Nicky was even better in 77 than he was in 76? No, I think the car was
0: really good. I think that Nicky in 76 was, until the accident, he was uh, untouchable. Because you have not to forget uh, another point, that in Jarama, the Spanish Grand Prix, James won with an illegal car. And uh, Nikki finished second with a broken rib. But at the scrutineering, they saw that the car was too wide and was to hide the, the rear wing and was disqualified. So Nikki won Harama. So he had even more points. But because uh, Teddy Mayer was a very good lawyer and not only the team owner of McLaren, they made a fantastic uh, um, defense of the case uh, that they show to the court, to the Sportico, that this little, you know, in, 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 a, in a Mickey Mouse circuit like Yarama, was not little because to have the car larger a couple of centimeters and the uh, rear wing higher one centimeter was a big advantage. But nevertheless, they made some calculations to demonstrate that the advantage was not so important to change the result. And they gave back, in the appeal, the, the first position to James Hunt. But Nicky also won Harama legally, and also only in Monza, because we had the, the Italian steward informed because also the smell of the fuel of McLaren was strange. They discover only in Monza that the fuel was with more octane that. Was legal
1: And did you have reason to believe that McLaren had been using that fuel all season or just at Monza?
0: Well, it's, it's strange uh, that when you make the first test of the fuel, because you know, is so complicated, but in Monza, we are very close to the Agip, uh, big, uh, any company where they have all the laboratories, so it was easy to make, but you know, To make the test in Brazil, in South Africa, in in Zandvoort, you know, where we race understop in the middle of nowhere, was not easy. But because Monza is near Milan, Milan is near the big laboratory of uh, uh, any AGIP. We take sample of every car, you know, not only uh, McLaren, but all, Ferrari, etc. And they made the test and the test was, that the fuel of uh, McLaren was over the number of uh, legal obtains. I can believe or not, but nevertheless, the only test was made, they, they discovered that the, the fuel was, uh, and you know, with the eight-cylinder, the Cosworth was very, very fast, uh, the McLaren of James Hunt, also Jochen I, I I could uh, think uh, that maybe they used the same, uh, it was not Texaco that was the sponsor, it was not Texaco, it was a a, a special
1: fuel made in England. It's crazy to think that all this happened in your first 12 months. Not only your first 12 months in Formula One, but your first 12 months at Ferrari. It's, It's an incredible story, isn't it? When it all came to an end for you at Ferrari, can you just describe your relationship with Enzo Ferrari at the end? Did you fall out with him? Absolutely not. Absolutely
0: not. And uh, I continue to have uh, a, also a professional uh, relationship with the Ferrari because I continue in my new position of head of uh, Fiat Motorsport. It was not only Fiat, but I also represent Fiat in uh, FIA in Paris. You know, I continue to attend some meeting and to have some contact with uh, Eccleston, Max Mosley, etc., etc. The following year, mid, I went to see Mr. Ferrari in Fiorano in the month of August, and he told me, "Daniele, I have to tell you the truth. I know you were right with Ronnie Peterson, but I cannot tell you the truth. Then I tell you the truth now. I was forced to make this decision. So was a satisfaction for me, but at the end of the day." I was trying to fight for Ferrari, not for uh, Niki Lauda or for uh, Ronnie Peterson. My job was to make Ferrari winning and to defend what was the best in my idea, in my opinion, the best for Ferrari.
1: And in everything you've achieved in your career, were these two years at Ferrari the highlight?
0: Of course, the, the, the victory in Monte Carlo was special because it was... Born in the middle between San Remo and Monte Carlo, that's why I start with my passion in motorsport. Because San Remo is the famous rally of San Remo World Championship. Monte Carlo is the rally and the Formula One Grand Prix. And in Monte Carlo, I had my father in the pit. I had many friends, and so. On. And I won already many times in Monte Carlo for the rally, etc., etc. So Monte Carlo was a little bit like my second city. And uh, winning in Monte Carlo with Nikki and Ferrari for me was, was a fantastic day, it was a big celebration. So that is a very good memory. And the second was when uh, I put Nikki in the helicopter. That also was uh, the moment of my life, uh, the moment when I put Nikki in the helicopter, and the moment that I saw Nikki coming to test the Ferrari in Fiorano that are
1: the top moment of my year in Ferrari. Fantastic. Now, I've just got a few more things I'd love to ask you about. Um, those two races that Nicky didn't do at the end of 77, Gilles Villeneuve came in. Very raw, very fast. Just can you remember the impression he left on you? I say to Ferrari because I met, uh, the request of
0: Ferrari, Gilles Villeneuve in Montreal to give to Ferrari my feelings. And he came with Joanna in Harley-Davidson, almost in the hall of the hotel where I was waiting for him. Wrong, 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 wrong. He came to the desk Why is where is Mr. Audetto? In the Quebecois, Quebec uh, slang, you know. Hey, Mr. Audetto is, is there waiting for you. Ah, okay. We talk. Half an hour, you know, how are you doing? He was coming, you know, with a very good result with uh, McLaren in Silverstone and... Uh, the reality is that uh, Philip Morris, Marlboro, was really pushing for Gilles to drive for Ferrari. And they were ready to put a lot of money on the table for Gilles. And of course, even Ferrari, in principle, was against the sponsorship from cigarettes, but Gilles was a Philip Morris driver, you know. was, uh, And uh, Canada and United States were... Very important market for Philip Morris. Nevertheless, you know what I say to Mr. Ferrari? (laughs) I don't think he's the right driver for Ferrari. (laughs) I say to Ferrari, I don't think he's the good driver for Ferrari. And then Gilles became like a son for Ferrari, you know. But my opinion, very bluntly, say, Mr. Ferrari, I don't think this kid, you know, was was like a Teddy Boyce, you know, was like, you know, Was I, I don't see Gilles, not in a Ferrari car, in the Ferrari world, you know, because...
1: Daniele, why? why? Why didn't you see him as a Ferrari guy?
0: Body language, how, how we speak, how, how he was so ag- ag-
1: aggressive. No, not ag- was, was he very confident? Or so overconfident. And this is all from your meeting with him at the Montreal Grand Prix that year?
0: Not at the Montreal Grand Prix. No, no, much before. I went to Canada for a Rally World Championship. And Ferrari asked me, while you are in Canada, please, can you meet him? and tell me what do you think about this guy? Because Philly Morris is talking to me very well. And, you know, I really want to have a double opinion, you know, yeah. <laughs> or a second opinion. And I say to Ferrari, <laughs> but nevertheless, he starts in Canada and, he had many problems. It was you know, of course, first race. You know. Then he went to Fiorano. He started to test, and then he went to Japan. And in Japan, flew over the wheels, the small wheels of uh, Tyrrell. I think uh, Ronnie or Depay. I think it was Ronnie. He flew over the, the the barrier, and he killed two people minimum because we we never know exactly. And <laughs> Mr. Ferrari started to have some some doubts, but because I brought to Ferrari Eddie Cheever as the third driver, in case of Niki decided to stop his Then when uh, Eddie Cheever knew that in Canada, because logistically was already there, Gilles, to race on the place of uh, Nikki that retired, Eddie Cheever went to Maranello with his lawyer, He say, Mr. Ferrari, I am very sorry that you choose for Gilles when I had the contract. And Mr. Ferrari say, you are not happy, Mr. Cheever? No, I am not happy. So he ask, Della Casa, bring me the contract of Mr. Cheever. So if you are not happy, Mr. Cheever, here's your contract. Crack, crack, crack. And he gave the contract to Eddie Cheever. And then after Japan, he told me, you know, that if this... uh, Eddie Cheever didn't want to break the contract. Maybe I was thinking to give him, uh, you know. Have you told Eddie that? Eddie, no. <laughs> Poor Eddie. Yeah, but you know, how we start, you know, Gilles was really a, a public danger. He was driving the car like mad. He was a special guy, this Gilles. He was going against the odds of a normal life. You know, at the end of the day, he was destined to to, to have ever. A tragic end, you know, because he was taking a risk. Everything he was doing, going out in the boat when the sea in Monaco was so rough, he was going out with the little Jack in the back of a big cigarette with mercury power, jumping over the waves, going with the helicopter. He was going like driving from Monte Carlo to Modena with this Ferrari in two hours and twenty minutes, going all the way to hundred and fifty. He was a guy that loved. Taking a
1: risk everywhere. Yeah, no margin. No margin. Now, look, another thing I'd love to ask you about is your time at Lamborghini. You were the boss of their Formula One activities between eighty nine and ninety three, and that there's one instance in particular I'd like to ask you about, and that was in nineteen ninety three when you put one of your engines in the back of the McLaren. Senna tested it at Estoril. Just tell us what happened.
0: First of all, he tested in a small circuit called Pem-
1: Pembrey in Wales. Oh, is it Pembrey? Okay. Secret.
0: Okay, secret. He tested the car, and you know what he said? The car, the engine is too powerful. Yeah, show me the the engine power, you know, the curve, you know? And this engine was really very powerful, but he had the camel curve, you know? I, I, I don't know that the torque, you know, was going too low and then coming up. But you have uh, between 7,000 and 9,000 uh, revs uh, that was really with uh, little power, okay? No torque. Lot of power, little torque. Nicky said, look, I prefer you take down 10, 15, 20th power, but... Feel the low, feel the torque. I want more torque because the effect of this engine when I come in a, a chicane or in a when the power comes, is like to have a kick from a turbo. You know, it's, it's difficult to control. You know, in, in in slower. We went back to Modena. We modify the camshaft and the air intakes. In fact, we lost 15 horsepower, but we came to, again, if I remember well, of more than 50 horsepower on torque. So the, the curve of the engine was much more linear, you know. Smoother. So we went to Estoril, we beat the record. We went to
1: Silverstone, we beat the record. Did Senna drive on all three occasions?
0: Senna drove in Pembury, and I think in in one occasion was uh, and driving. But also and break the record of the previous Grand Prix. And uh, Ayrton tried to convince uh, Ron that he want to race, the last two race, Japan and Australia, with the Lamborghini engine with the same car. that was made by Giorgio Scanelli, the chief engineer in McLaren, in 30 days. They just changed the back end. They put the Lamborghini that was a three cylinder and not a cylinder. And the car was just fantastic, you know. The power was so good. And the Ayrton want to race the last two races with the Lamborghini, not with the Cosmo. But for contrato reason, for logistic reasons, it was not possible. One day, one night it was 10 o'clock. I was still in my office because we were just packaging two engines that we were sending to Woking for the next test with the McLaren and. Uh, The telephone ring, no mobile phone, the the telephone on my desk ring. Hello, I am Ron. Hi Ron, what are you doing? I am in Paris. Ah, Okay, good, very soon. Daniel, I have to give you a bad news. What happened, Ron? I just signed a contract with Peugeot. What? With Peugeot? Yes, because uh, Chrysler did not believe me and I have to pay you 50% of the engine. With the Peugeot, I have the engine for free, and they give me 10 million to develop the engine. For me, it's a big difference. I have to take care of my business, and even if your engine is good, I am sure that Peugeot will do a good job because they will transform the engine from Le Mans 24 hours into a Formula One engine, and don't send the two (laughs) engines that you're supposed to send tonight to working because, But... You told uh, to the boss of Chrysler that a shake end is more important than a thousand-page contract. Ron, what, what can I do? Daniel, that is the decision. Do what you want, inform. Uh, and that was the end of the story, but not the end of the story because Ailton didn't want to race with uh, McLaren and the Peugeot, and he was right because they blew all the engine all the time. He went to Williams, and you're not know, the end of the story.
1: How gutting was that news for you and do you think you could have persuaded Chrysler to be a little bit more committed financially? It
0: was too late. When we made the deal with Ron, was in the Frankfurt uh, uh, Auto Show. All the big boss of Chrysler were there, Bob Lutz, uh, Jerry Greenwood, uh, Francois Castain, etc., etc., and Ron Dennis. And I had in my briefcase the contract, as decided with Ron and uh, Martin Widmarsh, and uh, they were very busy because they had the big stand of Chrysler, Jeep, etc. Uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Ron say to Bob Latz and Jerry Greenwood and uh, Francois Castain, between gentlemen is more important a shake hand that a thousand-page contract. So Bob say to me, Daniel, don't open your briefcase and that we have to sign, you know, we have the deal, and I start to change our engine from Magneti Marelli to TAG Electronic because this was one of the conditions in the contract to change from Magneti Marelli to TAG Electronics, because it was
1: a request from Ron Dennis. So hang on, at the Frankfurt Motor Show in 1993, the boss of Chrysler shook hands with Ron Dennis for a deal, McLaren Lamborghini, in
0: 1994. Yeah, 50-50. So the deal was, let's say, if I remember well, was... 20 million dollars, okay. Ron has to pay 10 million, and the Chrysler pay 10 million to Lamborghini, and we make the engine. And the engine was really fantastic. We only had a, a small teams like Ligier, Larousse, Minardi, etc. But the engine was fantastic. So the deal was shake hand. If you shake hand with Bernie, it is better than a contract because 100 percent. You shake hand with Ron, it happened. What it happened, you know, <laughs> because business is business, you know, for Ron. And uh, it's not that I have to convince uh, Chrysler to be a little bit more. Yeah, the deal was a deal. So they agreed to share the cost of the engine. But then when he called me, he called me and said, I have a contract. And the day after, Tom Walkinshaw and Flavio Briatore, they came uh, with uh, Tom plane to take one engine. They tested in the bench of TWR. They saw 40 horsepower more than the Cosworth. They flew to Detroit to see the bosses in Chrysler. And they say, please, can we have the engine? We pay what you want. We want the engine for our Benetton, you know. And Chrysler say to Tom and to Flavio, no, we forget Formula 1 because you are not serious people. We had a deal with McLaren. They broke the deal. Now we forget Formula 1. Asked me to close Lamborghini forever. They sold Lamborghini to Tommy Suardo. And that was the end of Lamborghini thanks to Ron Dennis.
1: They were so disappointed in in the way Ron had treated them.
0: Well, business is business. Mm. And do you think
1: if the Lamborghini engine had gone to McLaren in 1994, they may have kept it and Senna at the team? Do you think Senna wanted to drive that combination?
0: 100%. He was so pleased with the engine, with the com- the car was so fast, so easy to drive. The engine became so smooth with this with the new curve of the power you know Was Ayrton not want to race the last two races already with the
1: Lamborghini engine Wow what a story well look it's been so wonderful talking to you but I feel we can't end this conversation without briefly mentioning Super Aguri because of course it was a it was a cult team in a way wasn't it it was hugely popular just talk us through the birth of Super Aguri how it came about I remember it being all very last minute but how was it from your vantage point?
0: Well, one day, Aguri, it was racing for Lamborghini with uh, Larus, and it, it was the best result of Lamborghini. Third uh, in the Japanese Grand Prix in Suzuka with Larus Lamborghini. Was, you know. And uh, Honda asked Aguri, can you set up a Formula One team? Because we have a problem with uh, Takuma Sato. Because Takuma had a contract with Honda, but they decided to take uh, button and probably Barrichello, I don't know. And Tacuba was without
1: a Formula One seat. So that's for 2006, isn't it?
0: Yes. So Aguri flew to England, came to see me and said, Daniel, can you help? I like the big uh, challenge, you know, that was really big. And we did. With the old arrows, we did the Super Aguri and we did well. And on the second year, we did also too well because we create a big problem to Honda because Super Aguri was faster than Honda. (laughs) (laughs) Japanese cannot accept that a small team with a budget that was one quarter on the budget
1: could beat them. Daniel, I'll never forget Canada 2007. Taku finished sixth. Overtaking Fernando Alonso, I'll never forget it. Exactly,
0: exactly. And uh, Honda was feeling losing the face. My problem was that our team was too good to Honda, and they cannot accept. And they say to to the people at Honda, "Listen, how is possible that Super Aguri is faster than you? That you spend uh, four times more? That you have this bigger uh, company? That you is big factory? That you have the wind tunnel, etc., etc." And was difficult to explain. So the president of Honda say, you know, now end of the story, you stop. You stop, you close Superaguri, you close Honda. And then Honda sold for one pound to Ross Brown that won the championship. And we had to stop even if we had the possibility to sell to, you know who? Nicky gave me the telephone number of Toto Wolf. And Toto Wolf called me and he said to me, look, can we talk that I am interested to buy Super Aguri? And I wow. say to Honda, look, I have a potential buyer, was it this Austrian that nobody knows, Toto Wolf, you know? And Honda say, No, we don't want to sell, we don't want to, we just close Honda Formula One operation. Stop, and that was the end of the story. Honda decide to stop Formula One
1: at all. Can you remember what kind of impression Toto Wolf left on you after that meeting?
0: No, no, it was not a meeting. Oh,
1: it was only a telephone call. Okay. Yeah,
0: telephone I say, you know, was very short. He said, I call you back and then I call you back and say, no, unfortunately Honda doesn't want to sell or to continue to supply the engine or whatever.
1: So we had to stop. Are you surprised that Honda are pulling out of Formula One at the end of this year, just as it looks like it's it's getting good with Red Bull?
0: Well, I <laughs> am you know, a better witness because I, I witnessed the same problem with the Super Aguri doing so well because my idea was Honda we stop the Honda team and we'll put all the resources into Super Aguri that we are doing so well. Honda decisions are not dictated by logical uh, sporting uh, factors, but I don't know. I was not surprised, no?
1: Well, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. What a a super chat. I've loved every second of talking to you and what an amazing career you've had as well.
0: Well, thank you. It was a long one and uh, I'm still happy to be involved in some uh, project. They asked me some uh, consulting, but, you know, I am very, very happy that uh, I can uh, tell some story like I am doing with you because... That is a big
1: fan for the people listening to us. It sure is. Daniel, look, super to chat. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Okay, Tom, nice talking to you.
1: Some really incredible tales there. In fact, there are so many highlights that it's difficult to know where to start. I loved hearing about his two years at Ferrari. So much happened during that time. First, with Nicky's crash and subsequent comeback. But there were nuggets of gold elsewhere as well, such as Daniele advising Enzo Ferrari against signing Gilles Villeneuve. And what about the McLaren Lamborghini story? Had the team gone with Lambo instead of Peugeot for 1994, would Senna have stayed at the team? And how interesting was it to find out that Danielli was the first person to bring a doctor to races and to test pits to car radio communications? Danielli, many thanks for your time. That was a fascinating chat and I hope to see you at a race again soon. Before we move on, as ever, please send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Danielli. They can be from rallying or racing from any of his five decades involved in the sport. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Peter Collins after last week's show. Peter is a font of knowledge, isn't he? And he gave so much fascinating insight into the people and teams that he worked with in Formula One. YNS Saikiran got in touch to say this. I loved hearing from someone who has such a clinical view on the way things are done in Formula One. It was also great to hear about a classic era of Formula One from him. And he worked with both geniuses and great personalities of that era. Thanks, Peter. Peter was clinical in his approach, wasn't he? That definitely came across in our conversation. So thanks, YNS, for getting in touch. And what about this from Nuno Leal? Again, you nailed it, Tom. Well, thanks, Nuno. Those stories from the 80s are always amazing. And Peter Collins brought some amazing pieces of Formula One history. Just brilliant. Well, thanks again, Nuno. And I found exactly that while talking to him. I felt a whole era of the sport came back to life in that conversation. He had an amazing ability to do that. Well, we'll leave it there. And I'm sorry if I haven't read out your message. Thank you to everyone who sent them in. I've read them all and I love them. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Daniele Aldetto, and remember to send in your thoughts and stories on him. As ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.